The word of God from Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you would remain standing with me as I pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask it through Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Please be seated. All right, so next up in the worship guide, preaching God's word. Oh, that's my name. Okay, hi. Um, my name is Jason Walsh. I'm the associate pastor here at Denver Presbyterian Church. And it is my privilege to be able to come to you and share some things that I've been learning from Psalm 133. This is our summer in the Psalms. And we are excited and really delighted to go back into this ancient collection of songs, of worship songs, to learn from it how we are to interact with God as we communicate to him in the various forms of worship that we undertake, whether that's singing or praying. It really is a field guide for worship, this book of the Psalms. And when we come to Psalm 133, I know many of you are looking at it and like, yes, only three verses. We're going to be out of here so quick. And that's where um, I have to disappoint you just a little bit because we are going to need to unpack how he can say so much and so little because this is a psalm that David wrote with the intention of people singing it and reciting it and learning from it and being formed by it as they made their way to sacrificial worship in Jerusalem. Now, sometimes this was a journey that they could make easily within the day. But for some, especially in those festival seasons, they were having to travel a long way, sometimes taking eight to ten days round trip if they were living on the north side of Galilee. That would be a real undertaking. And so, if they're going to have this undertaking, here's this opportunity. You're preparing to go and worship. You're preparing to go and meet your God in his special presence in Jerusalem. And so you're going to sing these songs, these songs of ascent, which is part of the uh, section of the psalms that we're preaching out of, at least last week and this week. And last week, if you were here and you remember Ronnie told us about how these songs of ascent were a way of preparing to enter into God's presence and to enter into the worship with all of those who are following God and his ways. So as we're preparing to do this, I was just wondering, like, how would you, how would you pitch the idea of let's go on a road trip where we're all together for eight days and the whole point is to go to church for one afternoon. Does that feel like it's a hard sell? I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, eight days, if like the church is in the middle of like Yosemite, that would be awesome, right? But think about road trips, right? Think about the complications of that. How are you going to sell that idea to people? 
you're going to need the best ad agency on the planet. Which, of course, then gets me thinking, and by the way, this is just sharing my internal dialogue, which is usually a perpetual run-on sentence. It got me thinking about how do advertisers even do their work. Marketing professionals, they find a way to make something compelling, to actually get you to like the idea of doing this thing. And sometimes it's by crafting an image or a setting that just makes you want to say, in the words of Liz Lemon, I want to go to there. They craft this beautiful image, and you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about because sometimes when I'm just trying to watch a football game, and that's been harder and harder with each passing year, can I hear an amen? But I'm just trying to watch a, a football game, and suddenly it looks as if all of my relationship challenges would be solved by the introduction of a certain light beer. Or there's a song that comes on, and it immediately puts you in mind of something that, that is compelling, and you're not even sure why it's so rooted down deep. You know, those commercial jingles. And sometimes the jingle isn't even, it didn't even start as like a commercial jingle. Sometimes it's like a famous piece of art. My wife and I went to a concert the other week, and it was with, it was, it was this artist that we particularly enjoy paired with the Colorado Symphony. Colorado Symphony started the concert with Aaron Copland's um, ballet piece, um, Rodeo, and as soon as I heard it, it's so stirring And I'm listening to it, and in my head, unwelcome, unannounced, unprovoked, I just hear in my mind, beef, it's what's for dinner. Does anybody else suffer from that? And maybe that's a little bit too old of a reference, but I'm sure I can get everybody in the crowd just by going whopper, 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 whopper. These things get stuck in our head because those ads are trying to ingrain in us a picture of a better life that is solved by the thing being advertised. And hopefully you're starting to see why I went here, why my mind took me on this trip. David is advertising the beauty of being united together with God's people in worship. He's pitching us a beautiful picture of what it could be like if we got over the small differences so that we could be together in the presence of God. And that should be a compelling and beautiful thing for us to think about. So let's think about it with David as we look into this. And as one of the things that is delightful when you work with somebody that you would spend time with anyway, I learn from Ronnie as he preaches, and he's so consistent about giving us kind of a billboard of what's to come, and so I want to share what's to come for us. What we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the abundance of the redeemed, the abundance of worship, and the abundance of blessing. So this psalm, this Psalm 133, it's this song of ascents but it also borrows structure from a different kind of category of psalms called the wisdom psalms. They kind of borrow the way they communicate things 
from the wisdom literature of Proverbs. It basically sets forward, hey, this is good, you should do it. Or this is bad, don't do it. And so it has this sort of wisdom psalm structure where it's saying, wouldn't it be good if you did this? And sometimes when we get that compelling vision of wouldn't it be good if this happened, we kind of ask ourselves the question, if only what? This would be really good if only what could happen? And verse 1 of Psalm 133 is where we get that if only. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. If only we could dwell in unity. When it says brothers, it is using the language that you would use for a sibling. But it's also something that can be stretched lexically in, in a various different contexts to be understood as kindred, kinsmen, kinfolk, as people in my home state would call it. And brothers here is basically giving us a picture of our extended family of those who worship together when they worship the one true God. And so, as we are presented with this beautiful picture, we need to ask more questions. One of those questions is, why don't we live in unity? What keeps us from living in unity? And some of you are saying, you just talked about us being like family. Have you been part of a family, Jason? And I have been part of a family. I've been part of a family where, you know, having conflict was a stock and trade. And I understand it. We all understand it. To have family is to experience conflict of one form of, or another. So how do we address conflict with members of our family? We are people. We're created in the image of God. And we're to be thoroughly good and to be in relationship with God and others in a harmonious and beautiful way. But, but, we also are impacted deeply, widely, by sin. So there's going to be conflict. And how we deal with it matters. Do we forge long-standing grudges? Do we cultivate resentments? until they bear fruit as bitterness? Do we make it the commitment to forgive and to deal with the pain and disappointment of being wronged while not holding it against each other? Real unity in a family is hard because it does mean we have to commit to moving past it. And I will tell you, from my own conflictual family of origin, one of the most winsome things I experienced hanging out with people who went to church. And remember, I'm the guy who at 19 years old said out loud to lots of people in the room, yeah, this God thing's cool, but I don't want to make church my whole life. God has a beautiful sense of humor, doesn't he? Here I am. 
But one of the things that was most attractive to me is I spent time with this one particular family who kept inviting me over for lunch after church, who kept making sure I had a standing invitation to go to different things. And one of the things I saw is I saw the entirety of their home life. I saw the arguments. And there were a lot of people right around adolescence in that home. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of sparks. But they got over it, they forgave each other, and they moved on, still a family. And as somebody who had not experienced that in his own family, it stood out to me in bold relief. Some of you, and bless you, I'm so glad this is your story. Some of you are like, yeah, that's just how families are. For me, it wasn't that way. And so when I saw it functioning, when I saw the forgiveness offered in Jesus sprinkled out through all the misunderstandings of siblings who are borrowing each other's clothes without asking, and it was amazing to me. And I was drawn further and deeper in to learning about the God who can make that possible because of it. And then beyond family, beyond our nuclear families, beyond our even our just relations by blood or marriage or whatnot, why do we not dwell in unity? I think it's because we distrust the differences we see in others. And those differences might be social status. It might be economic power. It might be education level. It might be we're separated by language. Or, as the British are fond of saying, we're separated by a common language. It may be divisions based on race. And when we see these differences, instead of holding the tension of their way is different, and I might need to learn more before I decide what that difference means, or do we react with, nope, I don't want that around me. When we distrust the differences we see in others, it can be the source of that lack of unity. And sadly, we do tend to move from simply being birds of a feather who flock together into a belief that our idiosyncratic stuff, and when I say idiosyncratic, I mean the stuff that's like uniquely odd about us. I tend to announce mine, but we all have them, right? We all have those idiosyncratic things. Like, you could probably, if you looked at more than three pairs of my shoes, you could probably know, oh yeah, Jason pronates real bad. We all have these idiosyncratic things. But we may think that our idiosyncratic stuff is normal and that others' idiosyncratic stuff is weird. And eventually, when we keep hanging around the people who share our, our idiosyncratic stuff and keep talking about how those others are weird, it can be codified into further unhelpful stereotypes. And eventually, there's little common ground with those to whom we should be united. Because we... Though we know Jesus, though we've come to him in faith, though we're walking with his people, we still have these deep insecurities rooted into us. 
And sometimes that insecurity is not satisfied in our union with Christ, which is wrong. We should find our total satisfaction in that. But this is just the experience of walking in our lives. It's part of the tension that Paul describes in Romans 7 of saying, I see what I'm doing and I don't want to do it, and the things I do want to do, I'm not doing them. But sometimes we can, in our insecurity, not be satisfied in our union with Christ, and we become instead the people who turn our quirks into orthodox and others' quirks into a danger. And this can be in any variety of different places in our life. There are people who will not talk to you if you like one kind of TV show as opposed to others. There are people like me, this is to my shame, who will look down on other people for using disposable, cheaply produced ballpoint pens because there's so much better in the world that they could take use of. And I, I have a hard time understanding how can that not be important to someone else? Relax. Eek. And it doesn't, like some of you are probably shocked, you're talking about unity and why we don't have unity and you haven't even brought up politics yet, Jason. Well, guess what? I'm there now in my outline. And let me just point this out. Harvard did a study, and the title of that study was, Do Americans Really Care for Each Other? This was done within the last couple of years. Do Americans really care for each other? What unites us and what divides us? And they found that Americans still fundamentally care for each other despite political differences, but persistent biases of many kinds may be preventing many Americans from caring for those who are different from them and may impede a path to unity. What this study further found is that two-thirds of respondents said that they do care about all Americans regardless of their political views, but that only about 15% of those people who said that wanted to be in an extended conversation with somebody with whom they disagree. And that tracks, doesn't it? Do you want to sit down with somebody with whom you share very little in terms of your views? Not everybody does. But here was something really profoundly hopeful. 61% of those said that they would be interested in conversation with those they disagree if they would be listened to respectfully. And so, I don't know if you hear it in this, I hear it kind of ringing like a bell. If we have some sense that others are going to care for us, the way we would want to be cared for, we're willing to go there, even in the conflictual stuff, even in the differences. And that reminds me of Jesus saying, here's how to care for your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Take their place. Discern what it is that's appealing to them and offer it to them. That that is a beautiful step in the direction of unity. 
And we might be tempted to ask, like, can't we all just get along? But here's where we do have to be maybe a little specific. Can we be one with those who are unwise, misguided, or simply wrong? Can we separate from one another over something like worship style? I don't care for drums in the, in the church service. You know, if, if the organ ain't a playing, Jesus ain't a listening. But let's also remember that some of those style choices and preferences don't even stand the test of history. In history, the organ was seen as the thing that would tear the church apart because it was overpowering to the simple voices of the gathered elect. Things change over time. And sometimes you do need sound that overpowers you. Can I hear an amen? Maybe it's differences about what, what kinds of small groups should be offered by the church and what they do. But then some of the differences do occasion separating. How do people believe about the deity of Christ, about the fact that He is God, about the, our need of redemption? Maybe there's someone in our midst who's like, I just don't buy this whole sin thing. We do have differences, and some require distance. Because also, not all unity is good. There was unity at the Tower of Babel, if you remember. But what were they doing? They were building their own way to God or to the prerogative of God. Can we have true unity with those who would deny the reliability of the Scriptures? and what it teaches. Can we be one with those who suggest that all spiritual practices and all worship is essentially the same? I don't believe we can. We need to remember the admonition that we should not be unequally yoked. We can't be one with those who do not have faith in a God who is and who is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so we need to borrow the wisdom of those who have gone before us and need to affirm statements like this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Some differences are still significant, but not prohibitive of our unity. There needs to be an affirmation of the truth and an application of the truth, orthodoxy and orthopraxy right belief, right practice. And Charles Spurgeon said it really well in his own context in his time. Spurgeon said this, although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man-stealer. So we do need to be wise about how we pursue unity and be prepared to wait for us and for others to grow in our understanding, but not to give a simple pass to grave critical error that would lead people not toward God but away from Him, not toward the blessings of eternal life 
but a way to isolation and estrangement from the blessings of God. And we also need to check ourselves even as we do this. As we draw lines where it's acceptable to have fellowship and not, we need to ask ourselves, are we really holding fast to the great tradition of apostolic orthodoxy? Or are we so inclined to pride, and this is where I'm talking to myself, mostly, and you're getting to listen in. Am I so inclined to pride that I lose patience with others based on what is really a minor difference? Richard Lovelace, a church historian, wrote about those he saw in the fundamentalist branches of evangelicalism during the last century. And he saw that they were suspicious of difference and eventually became separate from everyone even slightly different to the point that the alienation from other races, political persuasions, and the kids with their long hair will be badges of honor for them. They will take good principles and sound doctrine and affirm them in ways which attacks and hurts others unnecessarily. It feels like there's traps on all sides, doesn't it? It's hard to actually be united to others. But here's the beautiful thing. David is showing us a picture that unity can be more about begrudging partnership. It can be more than simply the uncles and cousins and siblings that we tolerate on that road trip. Our unity can be beautiful, and it's made beautiful by the very abundance of who God has called to himself the abundance of the redeemed. Because the fact is that God's mission is bringing together an abundance of humanity to be redeemed in his son, Jesus. And that unity is in spite of all the differences. It is a most captivating and compelling vision of that abundance of the redeemed. So now we come to verse 2. And verse 2 says... It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Oil here is the fragrant anointing oil used to ceremonially set apart priests for their duties as the leaders of worship in Israel. It's special oil. It's perfumed. It's costly and oil was applied to the head of those who were set apart to serve as those lead worshipers. So what the picture here is giving us is it's not a literal account of Aaron being anointed to the priesthood. David didn't see that. That had happened hundreds of years before David was on the scene. But David's writing about it as a way of describing when our priests, the priesthood represented by the first official priest, Aaron, when he is in play, it's talking about the priesthood in general, the worship of God's people being led. And so this picture is showing us an abundance of oil. It's oil running down off the head into the beard, dripping down onto the collar. You know, when when people are anointed in ceremonial services, they tend to keep it pretty stingy, right? 
because you don't want it running all over the place, but the oil running so freely, it's just abundance. It's an overflow of the worship of God. And so, we are to think of this abundance of oil as an abundance of worship, of God's people actively, persistently, sacrificially gathering in worship together. And that unity comes from the shared value of gathering to worship our one true God. So imagine with David the awe-inspiring picture of God's people gathering in worship so consistently that the minor differences we have don't matter as much to us anymore. What if the preferences we have aren't as important as we get to worship God? What if the disagreements we have become just this minor triviality compared to we get to be here in his presence again. I get small tastes of this even when I go to presbytery and I'm worshiping alongside pastors with whom I have a lot of disagreements. Not on the important things, but definitely like culturally, like I wear a jacket on Sunday morning, but some of these guys wear it every day of the week. And I'm just like, have you not heard of stretch fabrics? You know, like, I, that's hard for me to get over. And sometimes in their pursuit of doing things well, they want to tell me exactly how I should do things. And I just feel like, hey, brother, stay in your lane. I'll stay in mine. We'll all be happy. But what brings us together is we gather and we worship together. We pray together. We hear the word preached together and we receive communion together. It's a beautiful foretaste of an increasing abundance of worship that I want to see happen in my life and in yours for everybody's sake. So let's go to verse 3 and see how David winds this up. Because in some ways, you're going to hear it. He's going to double down on this abundance imagery. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Hermon, Mount Hermon was known for its snow cap. It had a reputation for heavy dew, which was critically important for crops in that semi-arid land. And so Hermon became a symbol for unlikely abundance in that agrarian society. If they didn't have dew settling overnight on their crops, they knew the crops would fail because rain only came during a specific season of the year there. And so, to be in an area where the dew was heavy and where you could look up on the top of the mountain and know there's snowpack that's going to melt and gradually give us the water we need throughout the growing season, that was spectacular good abundance for that society. And David says, it's like the dew of Hermon. And you're like, yes, that sounds awesome, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And you, as an original hearer, would have been like, wait, what? Because Hermon is in the north part of the country. And Zion is nestled in the middle of the south part of the country, hundreds of miles away. How can the dew of Hermon settle on Zion? And again, David is using this beautiful imagery to evoke 
a captivating, compelling story for us that if we are gathered in worship together, it's like the blessing, that unlikely blessing of sustaining beautiful abundance is going to fall outside of its usual boundaries. It is a boundless abundance. This overflowing blessing from the unity of God's people worshiping together. And by gathering together in worship, we're joining with God in his mission to undo the scarcity and the privation of a sin-infected creation. We are part of God's mission as he announced it to Abraham well before us when he said, I'm going to bless the world through your family. He's going to bless the world through us gathered in worship. And that's part of this beautiful picture he's giving us. And it's captivating and it's awesome. And we might ask, how can we help? And it's answered, show up. Give the first part of the first day of your week to God in worship among his people. It blesses us, but more so it blesses this neighborhood, this school. It blesses the neighborhoods east of Denver and the Denver area and all the surrounding state and this land, this country, this hemisphere. Is it a big deal to show up for worship? I think from the picture David is painting, yes, absolutely. It's a big deal to show up because it means that God's blessings have fewer boundaries as they spread out throughout the world. Like the dew of Hermon on Zion. God's abundant blessing is going to come through our worship of him in unity, together. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The blessing of gathering together in worship is the deep and lasting shalom, peace, fulfillment, flourishing, that only exists in life that is in covenant with God. And that life is more deep and profound and sustaining than life we would ordinarily experience. So this unity of brothers, of kindred, the unity we share in covenant with God and with each other, it's going to escape the bounds of just who is here in the room. It's going to bless so many more people. It is this beautiful, good infection that we spread throughout the world just in our answering the call of God to be his people. And in being his people, we need to be united to one another because the church's faithfulness is measured in how God's people distributed throughout the world of every tongue, tribe, and nation can worship together the one true God revealed in his only son, Jesus this is exactly what Jesus prays for when he prays his high priestly prayer. I'm just going to briefly take us to John 17. Jesus prays a lot of beautiful things, but he says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples that were right there in his midst, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Aaron being abundantly anointed with oil so freely. It's a picture of the covenant blessing, overspilling, blessing so much more than the bare remnant. Like the life-giving waters of Mount Hermon, blessing lands hundreds of miles away. It's a picture of the gospel going far beyond the familial or national or cultural boundaries we might assume are there. Jesus is praying for our unity with all of his followers. That is a beautiful and attractive picture for the watching world. And we living in unity, worshiping together in spite of our differences and growing holy together in communion with our God, we become the attractive message of the gospel. Amen? Amen.